Hey everyone, it's Matt Harmon from the Yahoo Fantasy Football Show. Are you sad there's no fantasy football going on right now? Yeah, me too. I've got good news for you though. It is fantasy baseball season right now. Join a public league, join an instant draft, or create a league with your buddies before opening day. It's Yahoo Fantasy Baseball time. Sign up for the 2024 fantasy baseball season at yahoo.com slash fantasy baseball or on the Yahoo Fantasy app. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world completely reliant on Aaron Judge to score any runs without him. We can barely do a show. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. And how are we going to push this pot across? I don't know, man. We're going to really need some people to step up, some unexpected cult heroes to say, hey, you know what? This podcast can survive without our only good part of the podcast. And we'll we'll send it over to Billy McKinney. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Jake, and I was on vacation for all of last week in France, a country that cares not about the sport of baseball. And as a result, only a few baseball items filtered their way through the European Wi-Fi to me. But I am back, and we are going to have a little catch-up, all right, a little summary of all the things I missed in baseball while I was off gallivanting across the plains of France. Did um did the people of France have any uh, A-Rod questions? I feel like that might be a baseball person that could have, especially, you know, you sent me some pictures of people in Yankees hats. So I so know <laughs> that those my- were maybe some some Euro fans that, you know, were locked in for that run in 09. But, but any response there to the A-Pod? Two European related things. Uh, one was one of our tour guides, um, my my aunt who was with us was trying to explain to the tour guide how it was significant that I had interviewed A-Rod. And now the French tour guide obviously not heard of A-Rod, but they had heard of J-Lo. J-Lo, exactly. And so that (laughs) connected. And then the other favorite baseball moment of the trip was someone wearing a New York Mets hat was like ahead of us in line somewhere. And my father, who grew up a Mets fan in Long Island, went up to the person and was like, hey, go Mets! And the guy was obviously... (laughs) French and didn't speak any English. And I'm like, dad, what do you think he's going to talk to you about? Like Daryl strawberry for 30 minutes. Come on. Hey, you got to shoot your shot uh, in that, in that situation. I respect Mr. Mintz for trying his best. Uh, But yeah, so as, as Jake mentioned, it's been a, a nice little, nice little while you departed this country, I believe on June 1st, and yeah. it is now uh, June 12th. You are back. Now, we've you know we've communicated. It's not like you've been completely in the dark and you just had a, a nice long flight back to America where you got to catch up on some stuff. But we are going to begin this episode uh, with, a, like every other baseball podcast, got to be Red Sox-Yankees coming off this weekend. We are going to talk a little bit more about the Mets. And then later on, we'll hit some more of the fun stuff. We got the A's on a winning streak. We got Ellie De La Cruz. Jake still hasn't watched Ellie De La Cruz while in this country, so he isn't totally familiar with what that feels like just yet and i'm excited for him to have that opportunity absolutely jordan i i have not watched him live i've only watched highlights of ellie de la cruz oh well just you wait just you wait i, I don't know uh if slash when the reds are, are planning on uh, gonna being in new york city but i hope you get to see him live in the very near future all right but jake as we mentioned we have to begin near just just a couple minutes uh north of your apartment was there anything else we wanted to say before we get to red sox yankees I just want to take everybody through the games that was, mm. the games that the were, the series that happened, as we do every Monday. Three sweeps over the weekend. Royals getting swept by the Orioles at Camden Yards. The Diamondbacks, who I uh, realized are surging, taking the series, all three, from the Detroit Tigers. Oakland sweeping Milwaukee. We will get to that later, don't you worry. And then twos out of threes, Tampa over Texas, Boston over the Yankees, Pittsburgh over the scuffling Mets, the Angels over the Mariners, a result that has Jordan pulling his hair out, which will be a problem considering his wedding is only two months away from today. 
The Reds taking two out of three from the Cardinals. The Phillies looking back on the right track, two out of three from the Dodgers. Miami over the White Sox. The Twins almost pulling off the sweep over the Blue Jays, but the Blue Jays with a late comeback on Sunday. Padres, two out of three over the Rockies. Cubs over the Giants, Guardians over the Astros, and the Braves over the Nationals. But let's begin with Red Sox-Yankees because we are a basic baseball podcast and everyone cares the most about those two teams. It is a fact of life when you work in the baseball media industry, everyone who employs you, whether it is for writing or for podcasting or for video making or whatever, They want you to make things about the Red Sox and the Yankees. Why? Because they do numbers. Because there are simply more people in this country and on this earth that care about these two teams more than any other. It's funny because we have, for for literal years, for the entirety of us doing this, have kind of been exhausted by the Yankees-Red Sox discourse, particularly Red Sox-Yankees on Sunday Night Baseball. Right, because for so long, and it's just, it is an, an absolute objective fact that there are more Red Sox Yankees games on Sunday Night Baseball than any other, uh, you know, combination of games. That is true. It's less true now than it used to be, but it is definitely still true. But for so long, it was the same characters. Right, you would tune in, and there was Brett Gardner. You would tune in, and there was Dustin Pedroia. And this weekend was a funny example of you would tune in. And as you mentioned earlier, there's Billy McKinney, you know, against Jaron Duran or Reese McGuire. Like there's, it's, it's, it's kind of lot. And I know that injuries are contributing to this, but the, the names on these teams now are just do not carry the same weight as they did, even when it was the players that we were tired of seeing every week. Cause you could at least be like, well, I mean, that is Dustin Pedroia. Like, I mean, we're going to get mad that we're seeing him on Sunday night every week. Like he's a pretty big deal Ortiz, et cetera, et cetera. Now it just carries this strange flavor. I know you wrote about this at Fox recently. It's just doesn't quite feel the same weight. That doesn't mean the fans don't care the same amount. So that's they the do. thing, right? Because Anytime the Sox go into the stadium and take two out of three, you're going to have a bunch of Bostonians, you know, throwing on their B hats that have been sitting in the back of their car, sun stained from their time on the Cape, right? Like those types of people. They're amped this morning because taking two out of three is still taking two out of three at the stadium. But the state of the rivalry right now is very bizarre, as you mentioned, because there is no hatred. And the Yankees, who for better or worse, sorry, Red Sox fans, are the 1A to the 1B of the rivalry. And baseball history has necessitated that, and the number of rings has necessitated that, and the Yankees are the most famous baseball franchise in the world. They are, right? And I wish it wasn't the case, but that's a fact of the world we live in. And so the Yankees right now have bigger beefs with the Blue Jays and the Rays than the Red Sox. And I wanted to think a little bit about why, and like you said, I wrote about this at Fox, and I think the two biggest reasons are the the players on these two teams have not necessarily like been there long enough to develop beef with one another where if you look back to 2018 which was the last brawl the Joe Kelly Tyler Austin brawl remember Ooh, early April Tyler Austin mm, yeah. yeah there are only four players still on these teams who were in that game right mm-hmm. and that is Judge Domingo Herman Giancarlo Stanton and Rafael Devers none of whom are like people, I guess Herman is, but those other three guys like are not yeah. getting in brawls, right? Like yeah. Devers, Judge, and Stanton are not like <laughs> spicy characters throwing hands all the time. Right. I guess maybe Severino maybe was, was on that team as well. He was on that team, but I'm saying who played in that game. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think too, part of it too, and I, I know, I think Nestor sort of comments on this, like it's weird because on one hand, there are Red Sox fans listening and being like, Hey, screw you. We've won a whole lot more recently than the Yankees have. And that's true. That's true. You've won multiple World Series since the Yankees lasted. Like, that is an objective. You've been in multiple World Series, right? Like, all these things are, are, are objective fact. But the, the degree to which the Red Sox have gone up and down has made it harder to sustain, not just up and down, but the rosters have turned over in so, so many times now that it's hard to look over on the other side of the field and be like, that guy is the Red Sox and he is someone that is, you know, represents the enemy. Like <laughs> this team is just full of guys. I mean, it's full of all kinds of players that have come from all these different teams. And so that's, I understand why it's got to that point. 
But even much more so than the Yankees, it's not just because the actual performance and the records have fluctuated like crazy for Boston. It's that the actual people on the team have changed so often that you don't really know who you, who really stands up for them and is like, oh yeah, that's... Whereas the Yankees, they at least do have in Judge and in even a guy like Severino. Summon, and again, besides Devers, right? Devers is the only guy, but Devers is is kind of the antithesis of someone that is feels like is going to start a fight. And, and that's, you know, I consider that a compliment to some degree, but I think that that also doesn't really help that he's the one guy that has been there the whole time. Well, him and Judge, right? Him and Judge and are Judge, kind of right. the two different ends of this, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And the one beefy thing I remember with Judge was when he was playing the New York, New York song on the speaker walking out of Fenway in the 2018 ALDS. And then the mm-hmm. Red Sox just smacked him around mm-hmm. the two games, at Yankee Stadium. But like that was what like whatever, like that's not really anything. The other dynamic here, and then we'll move move on from this, is that Aaron Boone and Alex Cora, I think, are friends. And the way that beef layers itself in baseball is that it is like, why do we have brawls? Like why do teams run out of dugouts and start pretending to fight each other? It's because there's something that's festering, lingering that doesn't go unresolved. And you see this with the Yankees and the Rays where like their two coaching staffs, like clearly don't like each other. They clearly Mm -hmm. do not vibe. And so whenever there's and Toronto, right. And so whenever there's anything, anything like a pitch, like is slightly inside everyone's on the top step. And then the tension just rises. Right. And that beef is never squashed by the two managers after the fact. Whereas like if anything slightly spicy happens with Yankees Red Sox, I would imagine like Cora and Boone just text one another and they're like, hey, sorry about that. Like just wanted to make sure that everything's cool. Right. And so because of that, nothing lingers, nothing festers and we don't get the volcano bursting over the top. I think that's a great point. I think that this is where managers are weirdly making a huge impact in the game, the way that they respond to other teams. And we've seen this in other, we expand this beyond the AL East and we expand this beyond Yankees, Red Sox. This has been true when you see stuff with, you know, Reds Pirates in the past or Cardinals, you know, with with some other teams. Like this is where, or the Angels, of course, Angels Mariners, you know, with, with a guy like Nevin. This is where the manager personalities can make a huge difference in how teams as a whole react to these things. But I totally agree with you. I think that relationship in particular maybe is stymieing the degree to which this can get spicy. However, I do also think that the main point that I keep getting back at is just like the Yankees just don't think the Red Sox are that good. I think the Red Sox are fine. I don't think they're great. I don't think they suck. Like they're at 500 now with a perfectly zero run differential. Like that's kind of where I expected them to be. But at the same time, like, you know, if they can win one series here in New York, they go out of last night saying, you know, Alex Cora saying like, yeah, we're going to be, we're going to make additions. We're going to go for it. And, and we knew that about them, whether we believed in their roster or not. But to your point, I do think that there's so much that, that it influences these things that goes beyond the record. Yeah. Let's move on from this. I've thought too much about the Yankees and the Red Sox. I guess the series itself, I, I went back and watched a lot of the highlights from these games. Again, I wasn't in the country. It seemed like they were very close games that were not particularly enthralling or full of uh, outstanding baseball. The game on Friday night, Anthony Volpe almost hits the walk-off homer in the bottom of the ninth. Ball goes foul. He makes an out to end it. Sunday night, he strikes out to end the game. Uh, things are not looking particularly good for the Prince who is promised right now. Yeah, I mean, what was what, 14 combined runs over three games? Like, the offense was not exactly uh, showing out. And we knew that the Yankees, with the injuries that they're dealing with, like, that is going to be a problem. But I would say that it was it was in some ways a reminder of the pitching. Like, the Yankees pitching is honestly, even with the injuries that they've had there, has been pretty freaking good, especially the bullpen. And at some point, you are going to have to, you know, poke one over the fence and this lineup right now is just lifeless and it sucks to put it on Volpe because Volpe's you know 22 year old rookie and you want to be putting it more on guys like Labor, guys like LeMayhew guys like Stanton who are now back and now Donaldson who are now back those are the ones who should be carrying it a lot more than Volpe but because Volpe has had you know some amount of time to play every day and you would think makes uh strides and instead he's kind of going in the wrong direction it's it's been a little bit disappointing. I don't know exactly what the solution is there. I know Peraza was raking in AAA at some point. I guess he's still stuck down there, but it's not just about him. It's, this, this team's so hurt and also just so kind of lifeless offensively, which we saw last year, so we can't be too shocked. Anthony Volpe has a 67 OPS plus. 
I know he is a 22-year-old shortstop. I contributed to the hype machine when he made the team out of camp. I still believe he will be a good Major League Baseball player in the long run. But this is a great reminder that like a couple hot weeks in spring training is not always an indicator that someone is ready to hit at the big league level. And I know there was a quote from Yankees hitting coach Dylan Lawson about how he's encouraged because Volpe's not hitting a bad, you know, 605 OPS. I don't think that that's fair. I think a 605 OPS is a 605 OPS. And I think that his 10th percentile strikeout rate is what it is. Like after two and months and change, it's clear that he is having issues at the plate. Now, I don't know how much going back to AAA is going to help him because the adjustments you need to make to be a good big leaguer happen at the big league level. But can the Yankees afford to let him fail for another three weeks if Peraza's and AAA kicking the shit out of the ball? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think we might be coming up on, on that decision here at some point soon. But as I just said, like, if Stan's back, if Donaldson's back, like at some point you have to start leaning on those guys. Rizzo has also been terrible for the last few weeks too, and that has been surprising. So, you know, we can't just put it all on on the kid. Uh, that doesn't mean that he, it's an excuse, but it is a situation where their, their offensive struggles, it is definitely not all about Volpe. At the same time, Jake, uh, we also are now going to continue talking about the Yankees by extension because this week we'll be having one of the more uninspiring additions of the Subway series that we've had. I believe it is just two games as normal. But thank Yankees, God. Yeah, thank God. We'll be heading down to Queens for a judgeless, uh, peatless uh, showdown of frustrations and anxiety. And I will also say that the fact that it's two games kind of bums me out because as a neutral observer who enjoys the kind of the chaos that comes out of both of these fan bases, if they split, you know, okay, well, what's interesting about that? It's possible one team takes both, but I do. Well, what I like about these series and the way that the schedule is structured is that it forces fan bases to come away with a very clear feeling. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm worried that we're just going to have uh, sloppy wins from both sides and they both kind of fan bases throw their hands up on Thursday. But we'll see. It's, it's, it'll be an interesting little matchup. It's a fascinating contrast to where we were a year ago. Yeah. where these two teams were like the two best teams in baseball. And people and, were writing articles about how New York baseball runs the world, right? And like even us who can sometimes get tired of, you know, pumping up the big markets and the guys we're already talking about all the time. It was like, hell yeah, this is compelling. I'll freaking lock in for this because these teams are great and there are so many great players who are playing so well. Not the case right now. And yes, we will still have some famous players on the field. Uh, I'm taking a look at what the pitching matchups are going to be. It looks like we're going to have... See, okay, so Severino Scherzer on Tuesday and Cole Verlander. So in theory, in theory, I should be overjoyed to be locking in to these games. But with the way that this is a good time to sort of pivot it towards the Mets, I know we talked uh, with Emma Bacheleri, uh, on about this on Friday, but... You know, this should be, if we're just looking on paper, you're looking in June, and if I didn't know the records, I'd be like, oh, yeah, here we go. But with the way Verlander and Scherzer have been throwing, and, and Cole has, he sort of corrected this weekend. Cole had a really rough stretch there for seven or eight starts. He's kind of gotten it back on track. Severino, we still haven't seen the best from yet. I don't know. I mean, if, if anything, I feel like this should be a, a reasonably good assignment for these pitchers because these offenses look pitiful right now. Cole Verlander is a narrative bong rip. That is great stuff. I mean, there that is rife with storylines and motifs and themes. That one I will be locked into on Wednesday night. I also like that it's Cole Verlander and uh, Fromber starting for the Astros on Wednesday. So he's like, hey, guys, still chilling over here. I, my ERA is still under three. I don't know about you guys, but uh, don't mind me. <laughs> I know the Astros haven't had the best season, but it is a, a funny, a funny contrast there as well. I want to be clear, like, there's still a chance that both the Yankees and the Mets are good. The Yankees, I also want to say, the Yankees, I think, right now are a rung or two better than the Mets. Like, I don't want to just group them together. The Yankees have, like, an 85% chance to make the postseason right now, and they're a weird team. They're a flawed team, but I still think they're a very good team. Whereas the Mets, I have much more legitimate concerns about, to be honest with you. Yeah. And so, 
the overall vibe of this showdown is just a lack of inspiration. No one is particularly amped as a neutral to lock in to these two scuffling teams. I want to go farther, though. The Yankees are better than the Mets. (laughs) It's not like the Yankees are nine games over 500. This is a credit to them. Like even when they are a complete mess. And this was also true about last year, right? When they sucked in August, just absolutely dreadful in August. They were bad. They were a bad team. They had been so amazing for the first two and a half, three months that you didn't have to look at the record and be like, oh my God. The way now you look at the Mets who have a $400 million payroll and are, you know, 31 and 35, like that is a disaster. That is terrible. They are minus 23 run differential. The Yankees, while injured, have still a plus 43 run differential. They're still nine games over 500. Yes, they're nine and a half back of Tampa. But like the Yankees are a good team. I don't fear the Yankees, and I wouldn't if they started tomorrow, if the postseason started tomorrow, even with Aaron Judge in the same way that maybe we did last year. But I think there's a clear distinction here. And that's why this series is so important for the Mets to show like, Listen, you clearly are, you're getting embarrassed over the last couple of weeks against teams that, in theory, you should be beating. Now, I know Atlanta is, is a different situation, but you think you can correct course correct in Pittsburgh, and that clearly doesn't happen. But I think there's a clear gap here, and that's why there's even more pressure on the Mets here than the Yankees. Last thought about the Mets, and then we'll take a quick break. So there was like a Steve Cohen uh, vent session with Joel Sherman in the New York mm-hmm. Post the other day. Super interesting, worth the read. Cohen just going really long about the current state of the team and how he's just as frustrated as anybody, which he is. He obviously is, right? He pumped all this money into the team and they're not winning. For me, the biggest takeaway with what's happened is how Cohen has attempted in the long run to replicate the Dodgers, right? He wants to be Dodgers East. And he has said multiple times that even though they're spending all this money, he eventually wants them to be a sustainable contender built around young talent, which makes sense, not just from like a saving money perspective, but from a consistency perspective, right? You would much rather have a good player, any player from age 25 to 30 than 29 to 34. And we're seeing that now with the Mets rotation, which I understand is like another level older, but sustainable, good teams are good because they have good talented young players, right? And Cohen has said as much. The issue and the difference between them and the Dodgers is that he has so far handed the reins to Billy Epler. Billy Epler, the general manager of the team, oversaw the underwhelming wet diarrhea that was the Angels in the Trout-Otani era and failed to get the team with the two most talented players maybe ever on it to the postseason. And Epler's job right now is more about building the big league club than building up the future of these all these systems, right? He does feel like a placeholder. But if you want to just look at the big league team in Queens and say, why is this team underwhelmed? It is because Billy Epler has not pulled the little strings, right? They have tried to take money to solve a, a problem in the short term. And that's a totally legitimate way to go about it. It's not a process issue in that way. It's that they have not identified the correct players to be a part of that system or they've just gotten really unlucky, or a combination of the two. And so, am I concerned about the Mets over the next five years? No. Do I think this current Mets team is good? Not really. I don't. And I think they could make a wild card, but this team's not winning the World Series. Watch them for a week, any week, not even the week that they've just had where they've been, you know, pooping themselves every three minutes, but watch any week of the season of the Mets, and you can't tell me that they can win the World Series. And that's the goal here, obviously, for Steve Cohen. Yeah, and also why, again, like you are going to spend on a 30, you know, 40-year-old Justin Verlander because you think that he's kind of the cherry on top of a roster that we were pretty impressed by last year. But it's been enough uh, kind of underperformance, particularly on the offensive side, and enough injuries and enough just, as you mentioned, you can't – you cannot build the Dodgers overnight. You cannot. That's there was no GM that could do that in one offseason. But also, you that's you're working from a, a, a place of weakness when things are not going well, and you do start getting hurt because that depth isn't there yet. That depth has not been drafted and developed and signed. Like that has not happened, and that's going to take time. And so, you really needed a lot to go right with from a health perspective and from guys that you were really penciling in to be their exact form that they were last year. And now you're kind of seeing. The, the downsides of, of building your team that way. And then you have one injury to Pete 
and uh, we're really in a, in a rough a rough spot offensively. I have more concerns with the pitching and the defense. Same. I think same. Just you know, you build the whole ship out of old wood. You can't be shocked when it sinks. Uh, and, and, and I, I talked about this on Friday, but you know, the, the effect of losing Diaz is, has been substantial. Of course, is that a reason that you can blame the whole season going sideways? No, but I, I will say it has had a pretty sizable impact just in terms of the roles that they've now forced on guys like Jeff Brigham and Drew Smith and whatnot. Yeah. And they're, they're burning them out. And if, if, if Verlander's not going seven every time, the way you kind of paid him to do, then it's gonna, it's gonna catch up to you. It's going to catch up to you pretty quickly. I was thinking about the Mets a lot in the context of Manchester City winning the Champions League the other day. Mm-hmm. For people who don't follow soccer, Manchester City funded by, you know, you emirs from the United Arab Emirates by shakes and they have unlimited cash to spend. And they bought the team like a decade plus ago and they pumped money into it, money into it, money into it. And only after like 12 years did they finally win the Champions League. But baseball is not like soccer. You cannot simply take money and fix the problem. We're seeing that in San Diego too, right? I think in soccer, you can will yourself into being good just by buying the best players because you really only need like 13 or 14 of them. In baseball, you need 30 to 35 guys, right? And like money alone cannot do that unless you're going to run an $850 million payroll, right? Which is not happening. You go back to the Dodgers, you say, oh, well, they spend, they could do it. But that's with the infrastructure in place. And that's why when you watch the Dodgers and you say, oh, yeah, it's because they're doing all these things really well. And then they can just go just get Freddie Freeman and extend Mookie Betts, right? Not every team is willing to do that. But that's that's where those moves can actually make you a formidable, we are always good team. It's not just adding that, you know, when you suddenly decide to spend it over the off season, it's doing it at a time where you're putting it on top of a very, very, very stable, safe foundation of winning baseball. And by the way, to some degree, you could say the same thing about the Yankees, because again, like we haven't seen them be bad (laughs) because like the, and, and part of that is just having judge and having some, having Cole and like, they have all those things already in place that gives them much more of a secure kind of floor. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's tough. And so I, that's what's interesting because you say, okay, are, are, are we worried about the Mets for the next five years? No, but when Verlander's a huge, Verlander and Scherzer are big parts about that and we talk about the pitching and you see how just complete lack of impactful pitching they have in the minors, I don't know how that gets better unless those old guys turn it back on and and revert to the top of the league status that we saw them not that long ago. I mean, I think it's just Steve Cohen gives David Stearns as much money as he wants to run the baseball team. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the actual answer. Let's take a quick break while I shotgun a bottle of champagne that I brought with me from Fa- Fra- France. And we'll be back after this. This is former PGA Tour winner Smiley Kaufman, host of The Smiley Show, a Sirius XM podcast. You want to know what I love about golf? I get to talk to some really cool people. I get to walk the fairways of the best courses in the world with the best players in the world. And I get to share it with you every single week. Listen to The Smiley Show right now on Stitcher, Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Smiley, S-M-Y-L-I-E. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. Je suis Jake Mintz. And that's Jordan Schusterman. I was out of the country, not watching sports really for like a week and a half. I missed a lot. Some things filtered through. So I'm going to now tell Jordan what I saw and what I heard about in the world of baseball over the last week while I was off the grid. And he's going to then explain it to me even more. Jordan, are you okay with that? I can't wait. Ellie De La Cruz, the rookie for the Cincinnati Reds, who seems to be Usain Bolt. And Shaquille O'Neal and Pete Alonso and Mother Teresa <laughs> rolled into one. To say the least. <laughs> to say the yeah, least. Yeah, I mean, to p- putting it lightly, I would say that's a good combination of things. What have you seen and what have been your reactions from the clips you have seen through the, the fuzzy French Wi-Fi? <laughs> I mean, he hits the ball really hard. Like I've seen guys hit mm-hmm. the ball really hard. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. But it's not, it doesn't look any different to me than another guy hitting a ball really hard, if that makes sense. Okay. 
Sure. I have been most impressed in the clips that I've seen. I watched like his whole debut back of him walking. <laughs> like I thought it, it's not fair to him, but everything he does for now has an O'Neill Cruz sized shadow to him where like Cruz was just swinging at everything. And we're like, oh, wow, this six foot five Dominican shortstop who's too tall and a crazy athlete. But Ellie kind of knows what he's doing at the plate in a way that Cruz did not when he first came up. <laughs> so here's, I, since you said it, I'll, I'll lean into it too. And I'm already seeing Reds and Pirates fans getting pissed at each other over how disrespectful the comparison is, right? Because Reds fans are just like, oh no, Cruz sucks. Like he's way better than him. And then Pirates fans are just like, are you joking? Like you don't understand how special O'Neill Cruz is. Well, the first and foremost uh, reaction is, oh my God, we have two players that are remotely similar <laughs> like this. Thank God we ha- we are living in this time and space that there are two of these players that we get to watch on a regular basis. I know O'Neill Cruz is injured. Having seen both of them in person and having seen both of them move in person, I, I was there on opening day when O'Neill Cruz, you know, took Hunter Green deep <laughs> to right field. And I, I was, you know, in awe and we've both, you know, been around O'Neill and now I've been around Ellie. Uh, here is my quick comparison. It is way too early to decide this. Too close. We, I can't wait to watch these two guys play against each other. Whatever. Here's my quick assessment comparing them. O'Neill is definitely taller. Absolutely taller. I know people say Ellie is taller than he is listed 6'5". It's possible he's 6'6". Six, six. O'Neill Cruz is absolutely taller. Ellie does not look like he's playing the wrong sport the way that O'Neill Cruz does. <laughs> O'Neill Cruz, does, like I said... Ellie is faster. I know O'Neal is also ridiculously fast, and a lot of that is a big strides. And O'Neal doesn't look fast. Ellie looks fast and has these enormous strides. And as you can tell, if you've seen his quotes, has the confidence and the kind of brash nature of saying, one, I'm the fastest man in the world, direct quote. And two, just watch him run the bases. He is willing to attempt things that we have not really seen, kind of in a way that Tatis Acuna early on ways that you can't possibly fathom. I talked to Jeff Pickler, one of our favorites, one of the Reds infield coach about this before Ellie's debut. And he talked about how defenses aren't like the, we talk about the internal clock. They're not kind of calibrated for a player to attempt these things. And so these plays that he's making, these aggressive reads, these ridiculous, you know, running through the stop signs, some of these minor league highlights where, you know, he's basically standing on third base. And as soon as the guy on third throws it to second base to get another runner, he just takes off for home, even though the ball's still in the infield. It's shit like that, that like, he's just attempting things that infields are not equipped to expect, let alone try and defend. And that's what's so amazing about him. So I think he's faster. I think he's a more impactful base runner. The arm remains to be seen. I have a hard time believing. I know he just uncorked a 97 mile an hour throw yesterday. I have a hard time believing his arm is better than O'Neal's because visually <laughs> O'Neal's arm is the freakiest thing I've ever seen. And it happens on every single throw. The way, the way Ellie, we haven't seen him totally let it loose. It's probably similar, slight edge to O'Neal there. And then power-wise... The difference is that Ellie can also do it from the right side of the plate. Well, but as far as say, I'm concerned, wise, it's pretty similar. Yeah. Power wise, like who fucking cares, right? Like <laughs> it's true. it's 118 miles an hour off the bat. Like it's enough. For both of them. <laughs> it yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Like yeah. these two guys, if they fail or succeed, it's not going to be an indictment of their raw power, right? They <laughs> right, have it. Right. It's there. It, it yeah. exists. And I would say in terms of how much I trust them at the plate, I would say the other difference is that O'Neill had did not really have the kind of statistical production that Ellie did last year at any point. I know he had a run in AAA for like a month where it was amazing and the kind of you did in the big leagues. I think O'Neill can be amazing. I think he'd be an all-star. And also, this is the other thing, for as far as the stolen bases go, whether O'Neill maybe is faster in a, you know, in a dead sprint, Ellie's going to run. And Ellie's going to steal bags the way that we haven't really seen from O'Neill. So all in all, they're both amazing. I'm so lucky that Ellie Dela Cruz is playing an hour away from my home. I'm excited to watch him all year long. And we'll see, man. It, there's there's going to be some times where it looks ugly, just the way that it did with O'Neal. But the way he can impact the game and uh, whenever he's on the field is is really unlike very few players in the league. Anytime he has an ugly strikeout, if you're a Reds fan, just pretend it's a ground out. Okay? Because it's <laughs> practically the same thing. If there's no one on base, right? It's it's a tie game in the third, and there's no one on. There's one out, and he has a horrible at bat where he swings through three balls or whatever. Just pretend it's a ground out, okay? Because it's the same thing. It's fine. Yeah, 
Well, but they would say no because he already has multiple infield hits. Like right, they right, just right, wanted right. to put, put it in play. play because he's just takes four steps and he's on first base. It's anyway. a flyout. It's a pop yeah, out. Yeah. You know anyway, I mean? that's that's Ellie. We will certainly talk about him more. Okay, what else? What other things uh, filtered through for you? Uh, Alec Manoa got sent home from school. Yeah. So uh, we talked about this uh, earlier this season. I had him as as my bad for a good bad nugla. Did I think it would get to this point? No. Um, I mean, yeah, he got blasted uh, against the Astros, didn't get out of the first inning, and that was that. So he heads not just to AAA, he's going back all the way back to the beginning, back to square square one, which is probably right. Uh, th- that indicates to me that they are saying, oh no, like you don't need to work on things. You need to like hard reset. I'm very curious to see when he pitches next, honestly. Like I'd be curious if they are going to be working on a lot of things kind of behind the scenes with with him mechanically on at their complex in Florida before they send him to a complex league game because that or or if or you know if they send him to AAA at some point but this is clearly going to be a hard reset like I would not expect Manoa back in the big leagues at any time soon. I don't expect him to throw in a Florida league game. I think it would be kind of off the books if that mm-hmm. makes sense. I agree. Now why is he going to the complex and not to AAA? The resources and the setup in Florida is so much better than at any affiliate, right? They have all the tech there. They have really good coaching there. They have, like, he probably has a house down there, right? And so it's just going to be a more comfortable spot for him to get right than it would be for him to, like, travel with the Buffalo Bisons. You know what I mean? Like, that feels like a punishment, Mm -hmm. whereas this feels like help. And that's what he needs. He needs help because he is, this. he's not old. Like, the velo has not cratered. You know, like he's looks the, the same in a lot of ways. There's just some things that are wrong. And so I hope he's able to kind of press that reset button, factory reset, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, fortunately for them, you know, Barrios has really been better lately and Gaussman's been amazing and Bassett's been really solid. So they can sort of uh, sustain this loss for a little bit, but... I mean, the Jays, like, think about how, you know, important he was for them last season. Like, this is this is a significant guy to be missing for any amount of time. I hope he can get right. He's really fun to watch when he's on. But this is, this is a pretty pretty stunning development. I can't, can't really think of another example quite like this for someone this young, someone who's not injured. It's, it's a very strange situation, but I do think it was probably necessary, and, and we'll see. Like, what would you – again, this is an uninformed, not fair to put this on you – like when do we see him in the big leagues again? Like do we see him before the All Star break? Probably not. I but, no. but maybe unless unless something clicks and he like really figures something out and they identify it, I I bet we don't see him until you know late July or August. Part of it is convincing him that something will be different because his struggles in the big leagues this year were a result of doing the same thing that he or thinking that he'd been doing the same thing he'd done in the past. And expecting success because it's the, the process was the same. So they need to show him, hey, we are doing things differently now than you were for the first couple months. And as a result, you're going to have success. And once he can see and understand that, he'll bring the confidence with him onto the mound. Now, what would I do if I was the Blue Jays? I would buy him a 12-pack of beer and a huge bag of weed. And I would send him to Jamaica for two weeks. And I would say, <laughs> go chill and meet me in Dunedin when you're ready. Like, that's what I would do. And then we can get to work. Because so much of this is, I can imagine Alec Manoa was not having fun going to work every day for the last two months. And that's so, so important. And like, before you're ready to really get into it and accept your failure, I think it's important to have a mental reset. So that's my, that's my Manoa take. Uh, Uh, Other things that filtered, what'd you say? Yeah, what else? What what else? What else you got? What else you wondering about? Uh, Everyone is writing uh, Shane Bieber Will he get traded pieces? Will he get traded? Um, I think he... Man, so Cleveland's 31 and 34. They have played a lot better over the last couple weeks. And that's mostly because some of their hitters have finally started to come alive. Um, namely, the the Joshes and, of course, Jose Ramirez, who is delightful and amazing. But Naylor and Josh Bell have really heated up recently, which has certainly helped. Again, we just saw it last year. They don't need that much offense in theory with the kind of pitching that we think they're having. The weirdest thing about Bieber this year is the strikeouts are gone. And his ERA is still 3-2-9 because he knows what the fuck he's doing. But like the stuff is not 
Like, I don't really know what teams would be buying here. I, is, you know, I still think Shane Bieber is a really good major league pitcher. Yes. Do I think, you know, he just threw seven scoreless against the Astros yesterday? Like, he's clearly still capable of performances like that. I don't know. I mean, because does it make it more likely? I think it's very, I think it's probably more likely than not that they trade him, honestly. Just especially considering where they're at. The, well, that's what, the, the thing, right? Yeah. Cleveland, what do they do? They do not let their best players get to free agency. They trade them away for stuff back, even if they're in a contention cycle. They did this with Lindor. They did this with Clevenger. They did this with Kluber. They did this with uh, Trevor Bauer, right? Mm -hmm. Like they trade their valuable players away for prospects before they lose them. And I think they will do the same with Bieber. Now, in a weird way, Jordan, even though the velo is down and the strikeouts are gone, that makes me feel worse about him now, but I would be more likely to go and get him. Not more likely, but like I still feel comfortable because like you said, Shane Bieber knows what the fuck he's doing. And so Shane Bieber, without the velo, still having a 3-3 ERA, tells me that he can do that for another four to five years without the juice. And in the 35 to 40% to 50% chance that he gets back to the good stuff, then he's Shane Bieber again. And like that is a risk I'm willing to take with a guy who works his ass off and is really smart and has shown the ability to succeed both with and without the good stuff. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, that's a conversation for after next year, right? You know, he's he's a free agent after next season. So if you're acquiring him now, you're you know, you're getting a year and a half of 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 Biebs. But it's an interesting spot, not just because of where Cleveland is. Of course, it's not like Minnesota's running away with the division. So clearly Cleveland still thinks that they can compete and, and be in the mix there, which which would be fair. And I don't know if the fact that, you know, the rest of the depth of that rotation that we've seen recently, Quantrill, Hurt, terrible, Plesak, DFA'd, gone, Savali, Hurt, right? So those three guys who have been a huge part of their rotation are just non-factors at this stage. Now, the reason they're surviving is because Logan Allen and Tanner Bybee have been awesome. Tristan McKenzie just came back. Gavin Williams is knocking on the door. So they might still think, okay, well, we're fine. Like, we, we can still, you know, pitch enough we can and make a have starting Jose Ramirez pitcher. win every game yeah. on his own. Like, that's fine. We can make a starting pitcher in a can in five yeah. minutes. Like, it's, it's easy. So I, I, I think if he's not traded this <laughs> at the deadline, he's definitely gone in the winter. That's for sure. Quick congratulations to Shane Bieber for something. When he first came up, it was like, oh, my God, his name is Bieber. Remember, like Justin Bieber. That's great. And he has gotten good and famous enough as a baseball player that we don't think about or talk about that anymore. Like no yeah. one is saying, oh, the last name is Bieber. Maybe we're too far in the bubble. But <laughs> I just when I see his name, I don't think about Justin Bieber at all anymore. No. But again, when he had a four or five as a rookie. What were you going to do? Like, he's right. definitely still Justin Bieber. But then it's like, oh, shit, Cy Young. All right, never mind. <laughs> it's, it's a different different, uh, different conversation. Two more quick ones that broke through the Atlantic Ocean for me. The Marlins are, mm. are they winning or are they good? I mean, both. Uh, they are. <laughs> they're 37 and 29. They're, I mean, three and a half back of Atlanta, whatever. But... You know, four and a half ahead of the Phillies. They are, God, what's their record? I think they're like 17 and five in one run games now. Incredible comeback yesterday against the White Sox. And what's been most impressive to me about Miami is that they now finally have some hitters that they can actually rely on. Of course, Luis Arise has been the story, even though he's now hitting a pitiful 397. Shame on him for falling below 400 when everyone is watching and expecting him to hit 400. Uh, but Brian De La Cruz and Jesus Sanchez are fantastic. Jorge Soler, I mean, he's one where there is a version of the season where it's like, if you told me, hey, Jorge Soler is going to hit 35 home runs again, I'd be like, okay, yeah, nice. Like, nice to see the Marlins finally getting some luck, but that's Jorge Soler. It's not, that's not uh, hard to believe. But Brian De La Cruz and Jesus Sanchez, the exact kinds of players that they've just taken continual you know, gambles on over and over and over, and they've just flopped and flopped and flopped. These dudes are both raking, and now this outfield, once Jazz comes back, could really be one of the better, you know, young outfields that we have in the game. I don't really know what the status is of Jazz. I know he, I don't think he's that close to coming back, and it's not like he was crushing it beforehand, but it's turned into a really fun lineup, and the pitching, which we knew should have been the strength, has been not as good as we thought, but still good enough. 
And Sandy Alcantara, who won the Cy Young last year, has been Blandy Alcantara. He, and he yet has. They're still he, he just thirty-seven twenty-nine. He just gave us probably is one of his best outings, or probably one of the top uh, three outings of the year over the weekend against the White Sox. But no, it's it's so true. But I think it's also a good transition off of Cleveland, right? Because we knew we, we you know you can win with just a couple good hitters if your pitching is good enough. And and I think the Marlins are probably going to try to replicate that. So I kind of like that. And you know I'm always rooting for the for the fighting fish. The Royals and Tigers suck, right? Yeah, they suck. Tigers haven't won since you left. <laughs> I think they are on uh, what is it? An L nine, L nine. And earlier this season when their numbers were terrible and they were like around 500, I was like, there's no way, like what is going on here? Like I looked at this roster and believed it could be one of the three worst in baseball. And they said, I got you. Don't worry. A really big part of this is the fact that Erod and Riley green went down at the same time. Both of those guys had been there by far their best players. And uh, it's it's not it's not been pretty, not been pretty, Jake. It's this this team is very bad, and the Royals are somehow even worse. And I don't really know, can they challenge Oakland? I mean, if you watch this past week of baseball, you might think they could. Either way, the top three lottery spots are getting the same odds for the top picks. So that's really remember, it's not as important to tank all the way to the bottom as it used to be. So that's another element to consider. But yeah, Tigers and Royals are, you know, we came into this year looking at Tigers and Royals, comparing their rebuilds, doing the same thing with the Reds and Pirates. Reds and Pirates got to be feeling great. Tigers and Royals, I don't know what we're clinging to at this point. It is it is a dark, dark, dark time. What is the opposite of optimism, Jordan? The Tigers and the Royals. <laughs> yes. Well said. Well said. But hey, Jake, there's one more topic that we have to hit, and we just mentioned them, and that is the Oakland A's on a WMF and five. <laughs> more like the Oakland A's. Hey, I'm winning baseball games here. Uh, they, go, they go into Milwaukee. They sweep the formerly first place Brewers who are like a real baseball team who intend to win baseball games on a regular basis. I think my favorite thing about their five-game winning streak is it put into perspective that seven days ago, they were 12 and 50. Like they got to 12 and 50 and must have just been like, guys, 12 and 50 is not a serious record in Major League Baseball. (laughs) And now boom, 17 and 50. Also really embarrassing, but 17 to 50, 17 and 50 losses, Jake, 50 losses and so many losses on June 12th. But hey, let's stay positive. Why are they winning games? Well, the pitching has suddenly been sort of okay, kind of, but it's it's like Ryan Noda, man. Ryan Noda is just, is just carrying this offense. His OPS plus is up to 149. Rooker is kind of heating back up and they're getting, you know, enough timely hits and the, the pitching is keeping them in games. I love the Brewers, you know, they get swept by them and they say, hey, they're major leaguers too. And it's true. But they're worse major leaguers. But they're way worse than you. Guys who have been have barely been major leaguers for nearly as long as as most as any other team, right? This is obviously by far the least experienced team in the league. But I love it. I love it. I, it makes me love baseball. It makes me love that that a team uh like this can win this many games in a row. Because for the first two months, every A's victory, I mean, it felt like, you know, they should party like whatever i mean it's you you couldn't you couldn't believe it the ways that they were losing games and and then for them to win some close ones for them to come back win an extra is like they're 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 battling and and i'm just happy for them because you know you were in that a's clubhouse like you know what it's like in there like it's a tough time and you gotta you gotta love these these moments and i'm I'm just happy for all these guys very impressed with how the players on the a's have compartmentalized their experience you cannot be on the A's in 2023 and like be up there like grinding and taking every strikeout like it's the World Series. You got to show up to the day and you got to play little games with yourself so that you don't want to cry all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's that simple. And these guys have found a way to do that because even though the organization, and we'll talk about it in a second, is a total fucking disaster, we have not had any like scandals on the team. Right. We haven't had anyone fighting with the manager or like throwing bats around or flipping tables. These guys, maybe that's just, you know, a malaise and they're like ambivalent, but they've, it seems like they have enough perspective to enjoy themselves every day. And for that, a little hat tip to the Oakland Athletics. 
Absolutely. No. And again, like it's, it's a long season. You want to see these guys be able to enjoy it. You know, we talked earlier this year when you saw them with their, with their home run celebration, which by the way, I don't know if you saw that, it, that Kevin Smith, when he, uh, you know, hit a homer and got the, the hammer, the hammer just broke. I mean, that was like, I mean, I'm sorry. Now, now we feel like we're in a, in a, a level of, I, of, is this really real life that this is happening to the A's home run celebration, but also they laughed it off as only they can. I watched them unpack it from the box. Yeah. Wow. Apparently it wasn't the structural integrity. wasn't quite as uh, stellar as, as they had hoped. Let's spin this forward because tomorrow night, Tuesday night, there is a little shindig happening at the Oakland Coliseum. <laughs> and shindig. A, a little shindig, baby. A little, <laughs> little partay. A little okay. soiree. Tell me about, Come it. On Tell me about it. So it's they're calling it an anti-boycott, which is hilarious because that's just – doing something right is isn't that what an anti-boycott is it's just doing Um, but it's basically a way to uh for the fans in oakland to show their displeasure with the ownership situation and their cozying up to vegas and the way that the john fisher and dave uh, cavill have essentially ignored the fans in oakland for the better part of uh, two decades now and so they are give this is the most impressive part to me. Crowdfunded, like fan funded giveaway. First 7,000 fans who show up at the parking lot into the stadium get a shirt that says sell on it. And so there are going to be like 20,000 people or so at the Coliseum, the majority of whom are there to voice their displeasure with the ownership group. It is going to be a scene unlike any other. On Tuesday night, I'm fascinated how much is shown or avoided on the broadcast. I'm really interested to see some of the videos that pop out from it. And from what I've seen from Ace fans, they're encouraging other fans around the league to kind of voice their displeasure with the A's ownership group as well, uh, encouraging people to wear sell shirts. It seems like a very cool fan-led grassroots thing happening in the Coliseum. Yeah, and, you know, they... They seemingly chose the series against Tampa because, you know, respect to Tampa, but like th- there are other series where you have teams coming in where there will be a lot of other fans from the opposing team, especially on the West Coast. We got Angels, even Mariners fans that'll come down. Uh, but in this case, it's not like we're going to be drowning out a bunch of, of race fans. So this is an opportunity to really rally around yourself. Now, I looked up the definition of shindig. Google telling me a large, lively party, especially one celebrating something. I'm not sure what's being celebrated here. You're this wrong. Seems to be... You're wrong. You okay. Are wrong. Okay. And so tell dumb. me. No, I, 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 I sort of know where you're going up, but what, what do we, what do we feel like is being celebrated? They are celebrating their fandom, and they are celebrating how it is disconnected and mm. not intertwined with the ownership group. That their love for the Oakland A's can be removed from the way that John Fisher has run this team. And they are saying that we are still here. This is an advertisement, okay, not to the current ownership group, but to any other ownership group that would come in to maybe want to buy the A's and to Major League Baseball to show that it is a viable market, that these fans do show up when they are encouraged and supported. And for me, that is like, it is a sad thing that they have to do this. But I think this day will have an encouraging atmosphere to it. And so for that reason, I do want to describe it as a shindig. That's that's fine. That's fine. Uh, last thing on this, I really want them to win tonight. Because if they go into tomorrow, into this anti-boycott night with 25,000 people on a W6 having just beat the best team in baseball, how freaking cool would that be? Now and wait, I hope they do that and then get fucking smacked <laughs> on Tuesday. Well, I mean, I can see it both ways, right? I could see like a heroic comeback victory. Again, they're playing Tampa. Like Tampa's not going to care. They're like, uh, we're just here to win more baseball games because we are forty-eight and twenty, and you are seventeen and fifty. <laughs> um, tonight we've got uh, Eflin Caprellian. Uh, TBD for the Rays tomorrow, so maybe you can beat their opener or whoever the hell's pitching for them. So, uh, yeah, it will be interesting. I again, like we, 
it's, first of all, we're glossing over how much of a circus this Vegas stuff has apparently been in the Vegas government uh, <laughs> scene lately. Like, that story is far from over, and that is as much of an embarrassment as any of these things. Uh, but at the same time, I agree with you. I think Ace fans should be able to join together and celebrate each other, celebrate what they care about and celebrate their team. And it helps that, you know, they're, they're coming home having, having won some ball games and giving them some hope. Um, so we'll see we'll, exactly how that turns out. I'm sure we will talk about that on Wednesday. Uh, Jake, we uh, later this week we'll be going to Omaha for the College World Series. And college baseball is something, of course, we care about. We have a whole podcast with our friend Stephen Shock, the Shock Factor, now part of the SiriusXM podcast network. We encourage you uh, to check that out. We'll be heading to Omaha later this week. The College World Series will be ensuing. We have six of the teams we already know about. But our final topic today I do want to talk about because uh, last night while we were both while we were both sleeping, I believe, I did not stay up for the Stanford and Texas game. Something happened that I think we wanted to talk about at least briefly and try and understand why we feel the way that we do. And so this is how we're going to finish today's show. Quinn Matthews, a left-handed pitcher for Stanford University, last night in an elimination game against the University of Texas, trying to force a game three in a best of three super regional. The left-hander Quinn Matthews struck out 16 Longhorns in a complete game effort to keep his team's season alive. All right. Wow. That's holy shit. I mean, that's, that's really impressive. 16 strikeouts. Also allowed eight hits, three runs. Okay. Uh, Jake, he threw 156 pitches. Uh, Quinn Matthews did on June 11th, 2023. And that's not a time that people, uh, 156 pitches. Yes. What did I say? Did I say something else? No, you did. I just really want you to say it. Again. Oh, okay. Let me say it again. 100, 156. 156 pitches by one pitcher in one game. Um, that is a lot of pitches. Whoa, whoa, Jake. That's a lot of pitches for one pitcher to throw in one game. This is not a number that we see very often at any levels of baseball anymore. And as expected, many people, certain people, as we know, that really like to get angry about this, but it expanded to the average ball watcher and said, hey, that's not cool, man. Well, I want to say the quote tweets and the responses are super split on this in a very interesting way. And it's very definitive, right? There are people saying, this is a horrible situation for this kid. The coach, uh, Dave Esker, sold him out and it's an injury risk and this should never happen at any level. And then there are tweets that are like, this is legendary, like grinding it out for your team in an elimination game. Like he's a legend forever, right? And I want to unpack how I'm feeling about this situation because I am sitting here right now as a former college baseball player who pitched too much in college and had to get Tommy John surgery, whose elbow still hurts him when he does a push-up. Okay, now I was not ever uh, risking my financial future by throwing all the time because I was bad. Jordan, I guess the context here is important. How good is Quinn Matthews as a pro prospect? So that is an especially important uh, element here. And I want to, uh, again, I think the conversation we're about to have, you can argue there's no right or wrong answers here, but you'll see why we're split on this. Quinn Matthews is 22. What that tells me, and what I will now share with the audience, is that Quinn Matthews last year, after Stanford lost in the College World Series, and he was one of their best pitchers, as a regular 21-year-old junior, decided, I am coming back to school. Quinn Matthews could have been drafted last year. The Rays actually took him in the 19th round. He could have been, he could have signed last year for probably 200, 300 grand and entered pro ball. But instead he said no, because what I want to do is I want to go back to Stanford and I want to try to win a college world series. He could have done it, right? He had the opportunity to go to pro ball last year. He struck out like over hundred guys last year. He's a really good pitcher. And instead he said, no, what I care about is coming back to Stanford and winning some more ball games for the Cardinal. And so under that context, you can probably understand why Quinn Matthews, who, yes, is still expecting to get drafted this year, what he is prioritizing as an athlete, as a student, as a person, as a teammate. And so that is an important part of this story. This is not projected number two overall pick Paul Skeens at LSU throwing 156 pitches, a person whose right arm will dis define his future. Okay, Quinn Matthews, yes, could develop into a big leaguer. That's fine. 
Quinn Matthews is a Stanford student majoring in science, technology, and society. And based upon what we have heard about Quinn Matthews, he's a pretty serious student, right? We asked the people at Stanford on the baseball team last year, what percentage of the guys on the team are real Stanford students? And they said about 25%, right? <laughs> and Quinn Matthews seems to very much be that in that group, right? Like he's writing papers after these starts, like he's doing his homework. He's a smart cookie. He's going to have a happy life no matter what he does. And so where I'm sitting right now is a place where I'm very conflicted, okay? There is a thought process here that's like, oh, Quinn Matthews wanted to stay in the game. The coach went out there and the kid said, I want to stay out there. And so he let him. I think that's flawed. I think 22-year-olds make bad decisions. I think any pitcher who's worth a shit would fight to stay in the game. And it is the coach's responsibility as the adult in the room to know when it is the right or wrong decision. And so I think as a blanket argument, that is false here for throwing 156 pitches. However, I think it is fucking awesome. I think it is badass. I think it is a legitimate accomplishment by Quinn Matthews that deserves to be celebrated for what he was able to do last night by throwing that many pitches. I, I genuinely believe that. I think it is a concerning thing that he was allowed to do this, despite the context here that is really important, that makes this a very complicated example of this. But I think what he did, my first reaction to it was, that is sick. That is badass. Good for him. He is pitching for his teammates and his, and like his love of the sport. And he's going out there and he's grinding and he's exhausted. And, you know, like, I love it. And then my second level thought is, huh, that's maybe not the best thing. And I want to be clear, like I'm sitting here and everyone listening, I hope you know this about me. I am not like advocating for the exploitation of college athletes. I think that I am a person with enough, you know, perspective on this to understand when it is wrong and when adults are taking advantage of the kids mm -hmm. in a bad way. I know that. I know that that is true. And yet I'm sitting here and I'm like, that was fucking lit. Like, yeah. For yeah. Matthews. And to me, as, as we've learned more about pitching injuries and like what is safe and what is not safe in general, I feel like pitch counts are overblown more than short rest. Like bringing guys back the day after they threw a hundred or, or even 90 pitches bothers me more. And I think the research shows that like that is more dangerous than letting someone, than the difference between throwing 110 and 130. Now, I say that to preface it as saying there is a number where it's like, holy shit. And this is a number where I'm like, holy shit. Anything over 140 is holy shit, let alone the fact that, of course, you've already thrown this many. You're in the ninth. And at this point, too, they left him in there with a five-run lead after they scored in the top of the ninth. So you could say it was just unnecessary. They didn't have to do that. And that's, all those things are true. So to Jake's point, it's hard because I think it is a hell of an accomplishment. He clearly wanted to do it. That doesn't mean that he should get to if you feel like that they should be protecting him. But I also feel like he has he is an adult. He's made these decisions to some degree. And I feel like he is going to feel better having done this than if he hadn't done this, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. And I know we're thinking about his arm. We're thinking about his arm and his future and stuff like that. But I feel like he's the one that gets to decide that to some degree in, in these situations. And it is different with every guy and different with, with their future and whatever. But that's what makes it hard. To Jake's point, it, I agree. I'm, I'm conflicted as well because... I don't want everyone to throw 156 pitches, but when it happens, I think we can say, damn, you know, hats off. I hope that Stanford wins tonight, goes to the College World Series, and you and I can sit down with Quinn Matthews at some point for this show and do like a chit-chat with the kid who threw 156 pitches, because I mm -hmm. think that's super interesting. Yeah. And by the way, like there's versions of this. We just saw in the D3 World Series with kid Gabriel Romano keeping his season alive with 164 pitches, right? I mean, and he's like a Hopkins grad student who's saying, yeah, obviously this is the, that's different. He knows for a fact that's the last game he's ever going to pitch. That is not the case for Quinn Matthews. Uh, but like there are versions of this too, where it's just like, these kids do have agency and yes, we have to protect them in certain instances, but this is one that I feel like is right on the line when you consider the context right. of the decisions Quinn Matthews has already made that I think it's, it's kind of tough. Like he's a senior at Stanford. 
Like the kid, the kid clearly like has his head on his shoulders. You know what I mean? He's already, he's already done pretty freaking well for himself too. So I think he'll be, he'll be okay. So anyway, uh, listen, it's hard. I, if you, if you listen to this, you'll be like, you guys are reckless. I, I get it, but that's kind of where we're coming from and we'll see, we'll see what happens. And maybe I'm reckless, motherfucker. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Like, that's the other thing about this. The reason why I do feel like we can sort of laugh about it is like, this isn't, that serious like it's serious it's serious and yes we are talking about kids i guess health in their arm and okay are they going to be in pain when they're old i I know you you live you're living it right and so i want you maybe it's irresponsible of me to be sitting here as someone who is living this every day and saying that like it's a good thing like i would (laughs) love to be able to like feel my fingers all the time Mm -hmm. you know what i mean but i don't and like i'm happy and the rest of my life is okay and like I look back on the times in college, my senior year, where, because for me, right, it was like three innings on Friday, three on Saturday, like two on Sunday, right? Like, because I was a closer. And like, I look back on them, like, I think of it, and I'm like, man, that was awesome. I have no regrets, right? <laughs> and maybe Quinn Matthews, again, it's different. I know we're going in a bit of a merry-go-round here, but it, it's, a, it's a very interesting, complicated topic, and we appreciate the folks that are uh, still listening to us banter about it. Let us know. Baseballbarbacast at gmail.com. We appreciate all the support of this show. Jake is finally back. No more guest co-hosts. But thank you to my brother. Thank you to Emma Bachelary. Thank you to A-Rod for helping us fill the shows while Jake was gone. Really appreciated that. Uh, but until Wednesday, uh, good luck to all of our A's fans going to the anti-boycott. Good luck to everyone. Uh, Good luck to Tigers, Mets, Yankees fans, all the ones really going through it right now. We are looking forward to continuing this baseball podcast on Wednesday. But until then, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Chris Tyler for producing. And we'll talk to you in 48 hours. Au revoir. Serious XM Podcasts.